All right, if you have your Bible, now's a good time for you to open it up. This is the time in the service when we open the scriptures and read them and interpret them for one another. So we're in the Gospel of John today in chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 and then also 9 through 14. John 1, 1 through 5 and 9 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. May God add his blessing to the reading and the understanding and the doing of his holy word. Friends, welcome to week two in our series. It's called A Matter of Life and Death. And during November, we're opening the Gospel of John to see what it says to us about life and death and about life after death. And today, our focus is on the value of human life. I want to make an argument today that human life has value, and I want to make it in a particular way so we can be clear about why our lives matter. Uh, Now, some sermons that we give at Timberlake are aimed at your heart, right, to get you to feel, to be moved emotionally. Uh, Some sermons are aimed really at your hands to get you to respond with work, with service, with some kind of blessing for someone else. Today, the sermon is really aimed at your head. I want to get you to think and maybe even to think differently on your way out than you thought when you came in here. The Apostle Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, so I want to make an intellectual theological argument with you today about why human life matters. Okay, so the first argument is related to our grief when someone dies, and the second argument is related to the nature of life itself, and the third argument is related to the ownership, uh, the source of that life. Now, I realize death is a heavy subject, right? And you're like, come on, gee whiz, pastor, you're bumming us out. So I'm, every week, I'm going to give you my best death jokes. All right. So this is what I have for this week. Man came home from the doctor looking very worried. And his wife said, what's wrong, dear? And he said, well, the doctor told me I have to take these pills every day for the rest of my life. And she said, so what? You know, a lot of people have to do that. He said, I know, but the doctor only gave me four pills. You know, personally, I'm afraid of dying on an elevator, so I'm going to start taking steps to avoid them. (laughs) All right. uh, Oh, here's a good question. Will glass coffins be a success? Remains to be seen. Okay, last one. I have updated me all this talk of wills. I've been updating my will this week, and I've decided to include a request for six Washington Redskins football players to be pallbearers at my funerals. Uh, at my funeral, that way uh, the Redskins can let me down one last time. <laughs> They're terrible this year, right? Oh my gosh, that joke works so good this year. <laughs> 
Uh, it's good. It's good for us to talk about these things, friends, and I'm glad that we can have this conversation, and hopefully not just during November, uh, but for the rest of our lives to sort of be open and honest about the reality of life and the reality of death. And last week we said, you know, there's three sort of big reasons we need to have this conversation. So here's the why. Uh, number one, because everybody's going to die. Number two, because we live in a death-denying culture. And number three, because it's the church's job to talk about these things. Okay, so first, because everybody's going to die. Nobody's going to get out of this life alive uh, unless Jesus comes back in the meantime, and that could happen. And if it does, hallelujah. But otherwise, you and I, we're, these bodies will, will wear out, right? Secondly, we live in a culture where most people do not want to acknowledge the reality of death. They speak about it euphemistically, they ignore it, they pretend like it doesn't exist. And so with that in mind, it's our job. We are the stewards of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news of Jesus is on Easter, he's alive, right? But the hard news that goes with the good news is on Friday, he's crucified. And so he died and rose again, and that is the story that we are here to tell. A few years ago, this really this idea hit home for me. A friend of mine, his father-in-law died after a long battle with cancer, and he and his wife, the man's daughter, they asked me, would I do a funeral uh, for, their, uh, for their loved one, for the, for the dad, father-in-law? And I said, of course I would, um, except they couldn't really agree on what they wanted in terms of a funeral. They couldn't decide if they wanted a more formal church service or if they wanted something less formal, like in a restaurant, just a family gathering. And part of the hang-up was my friend's wife's sister, so the man's daughter, who had two young kids, the man's granddaughters. And uh, she was reluctant to commit to anything, and this is what she said. She did not want to do anything that would make her kids sad. She refused to have any kind of experience that would cause her kids to cry. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, my gosh, these poor kids, these poor kids. We want to protect our kids, right? I mean, that's a good instinct. But there's protecting and then there's hurting. And when we bubble wrap our children and try to protect them from anything and everything bad, we actually do them more harm than good, don't we? Because sooner or later, something bad is going to happen in their lives that we cannot control, and they're going to have no idea how to deal with it. They're going to have no idea what to do when something really difficult happens. So, friends, we need to talk about these things. And if we don't do it, I'm suggesting to you probably nobody else will. So this brings us to argument number one. Our grief reminds us of the value of human life. Okay, so in this sense, grief is a good thing because it points to the importance, to the value of human life. When someone we love dies, we get sad. We cry, we grieve, we mourn. Why? Because that person is important to us. Because they matter to us. When someone you love dies, you grieve. And when you die... Your family and friends, they will grieve. Why? Because you matter. Your life matters. There are people in this life who love you and whose lives will be different when you die. You see, to deny our grief is to deny the value of human life. Think about it. You know, this is why when a houseplant dies or a hamster dies, we don't grieve at the same level as when a human dies. Because humans are far more important than houseplants or hamsters. You see? Friends, grief is a good and a right response to a loss. So when, when someone you love dies and someone comes along and says, hey, you know, don't cry, don't worry about it, don't listen to those people, okay? They don't know what they're talking about when they try to talk you out of your grief. When they try to tell you it's no big deal, it is a big deal. 
Death is a terrible, awful reality that we live with. And, and so we grieve much because we love much. We grieve much because we love much. And these two ideas go together. And I realize this is confusing. It feels like they should be opposite because love feels warm, but grief feels cold, right? So we say, well, aren't those two things opposite? No. The opposite of love is not grief. The opposite of love is indifference. Indifference. And I had to make a graphic, make a graphic for us today, okay? Indifference says, I don't care. Whatever. It doesn't matter to me. Both love and grief say, I care very much. I care very much. Now, one feels warm and one feels cold, but they are together in this human life that we are living. Now, what does John's gospel teach us? When we open the gospel of John, it says a lot of things about life and death. I think maybe the most helpful around this idea of grief is the story of Lazarus. So Jesus' friend Lazarus died. And when Jesus came, Jesus was grieving. He was moved in his spirit. And the story goes like this, John 11, verse 33 and 35. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, it was Lazarus' sister, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit. You ever been greatly disturbed in your spirit? And deeply moved. And Jesus began to weep. This is not merely, uh, hey, Jesus was in touch with his emotions. You know, be like Jesus. Be emotional like Jesus. That's part of it. But it's much deeper than that, friends. This is pointing to the reality of the awfulness of death. It is so awful that even the Son of God grieves when his friend died. And he he did it in an outward way with prayer and and surrounded by this community. Um, Most of us, I would say, are reluctant to grieve openly right? Especially the guys, right? Some of us as guys heard a message early on in our life, not supposed to cry, not supposed to show your emotions, Uh, but it's okay. It's okay to do it. And I'm aware that as white middle-class Americans, our grieving is restrained, right? We sort of, we're sort of proper and we kind of hold it in and I want to be polite in in mixed company. I don't want to do anything to bring attention to my Self. I mean, I, I get it. I feel that same tension. But what I'm suggesting to you, it's okay to share your grief outwardly. When I was a chaplain at a hospital doing my seminary training, I saw a lot of different kinds of expressions of grief. And one I'll never forget, these two middle-aged women learned that their elderly mother had died. And when they heard the news, they fell on the floor. And they began to moan and wail and cry out. For some of us, that would make us uncomfortable, right? But for them, that was the only way they knew how to outwardly express what they were feeling on the inside, which was, I cannot imagine how we're going to go on without mom because mom has been there our whole life and now she's not. What am I going to do? And so they fell on the floor. And I want to suggest to you, that's good. That's right. The, the, the depth of their grief is a sign of their love for their mother. It's a sign of the value that their mom's life has in the world. That's argument number one. Okay, argument number two is this, about the nature of human life. Human life has value because it is integrated. Humans are bodies and souls together. And we might say that we're ensouled bodies. We might say we're embodied souls. However you want to put it, we are body and soul together. This is an important Christian theological idea. And hopefully as I unpack it, it'll make more sense what I'm saying. There's there's a, a philosophical idea out there called dualism. All right, just stay with me. Dualism, dual means two, right? So dualism says human life is body and soul separate. 
And not only that, the soul is good. The soul is sort of the real self, this invisible self that's in me. But the body, the body is not so good, right? Because the body comes from the the material world. And the material world, it rusts and decays. And our bodies wear out and they get get injury or or illness. And so the, the soul is really what's good and the body really not so much. And so dualism says the best thing then that we could hope for is for the soul to escape the body, to kind of get away from the body. Can we transcend the material world with enlightenment, with higher ways of thinking, and then sort of go on into the higher plane of existence? Now, Christians have a problem with this idea of dualism. Why is that? Because the Bible teaches us that human life is body and soul together not easily separated. Not only that, the Bible teaches us that not only are souls good, bodies are also good. In Genesis, when God creates the world, God takes the dust of the earth and breathes into it the breath of life to make a human being, right? And so human beings are both dust and breath, both body and soul. So God makes a world, God makes the mountains and the trees and the turtles and the fish and the birds and a man and a woman. And after God sees all of this that God has made, God calls it what? Good. Very good, actually. Very good. So God calls the material world and all that is in it very good. Dualism says, yeah, just souls are good. Christian theology says, no, 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 bodies and souls are good. Let's look at what the Gospel of John says about it. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and lived among us, and we've seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. In Christ, the Word of God has taken on flesh. And what I want to suggest to you is this is the degree to which God has gone to say to us that our lives are good, that our lives are worth redeeming, because God made us this way. God loves us and wants to transform us into something good and right and restore us the image restore to us the image with which we were made so john says the word became flesh he lived among us to reveal the glory of god now we call this idea of word becoming flesh of god appearing in the world we call this idea incarnation incarnation this is why we celebrate christmas every year because of the incarnation Uh, incarnation comes from the word carne which means what Meat, it means flesh, okay? So in carne means in the flesh. So in Jesus Christ, God has come near to us in a person. Again, this is the degree to which God is willing to go to say, look, your life is good, your body is good. I want to redeem it and make something beautiful out of it. The story goes that a uh, kindergarten teacher was, she was walking around observing her students and they were drawing and, and coloring and she came to this one girl who's working diligently, and she asked the little girl, what are you drawing? And the girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher thought about that for a moment, and then she said to the girl, well, okay, but nobody really knows what God looks like. And without missing a beat, the girl said, well, they will in a minute. (laughs) The central story of our faith, friends, is that we know what God looks like. What God looks like is Jesus Christ. God has taken on flesh. The Word became flesh, incarnate, incarnation. God took on human form in Christ. 
Human life has value because it is body and soul together. The problem with dualism is that it sets up this false bifurcation, this false split that God never intended. Uh, Dualism suggests that the material world is evil, only the spiritual world is good. The body is sort of a, a temporary housing unit for the real self, the true self. So think with me about the implications of this idea for a minute, okay? If we believe that only souls are good, only souls matter, bodies are just sort of a temporary carrying case, then the church's goal is to get the souls of people out of this material world and on into heaven. And there's no room for the ministry to the body of people with clothing or food or shelter, right? If only souls matter, then when my neighbor is hungry, I don't have to feed him. I just have to pray for him, right? Now, is there room for that in the ministry of Jesus Christ? No, Jesus blessed bodies and souls. Jesus healed the sick, right? Jesus fed the hungry, He blessed souls. Yes, he also blessed bodies, body and soul together. Another problematic uh, implication of dualism has to do with life after death. Okay, so when grandma dies and grandkids ask, where did grandma go? We say she went to heaven, right? That's what we say. And there is some sense in which the deceased move into the nearer presence of God in some mysterious way. Yes, They are with God. But remember, our hope is not in the immortality of the soul. Like grandma's soul has always existed and it will always exist and it's gone on somewhere else. Our hope is in the resurrection of the body. Okay, so when we say the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. So when Jesus comes back, and he's coming back, when he comes back, he's going to say to his church, get up and we will be raised to new life, body and soul together. This makes sense? Okay, some of you, yes, some of you, maybe not. We could talk more later. All right, let's keep going. Argument number three. Human life has value because it's on loan from God. Human life matters because it's on loan from God. Uh, what I want to suggest to you is our lives do not belong to us. They belong to God. Now, this is not a new idea for most of you. I think most of you heard this already, but here's a little twist. I've got a little twist for you. We usually think of human life as a gift, right? We talk about, oh, my life is a gift. Your life is a gift. Here's the thing about gift, though. Gift is, a gift is given away, and then when you give a gift, you are no longer in control of what happens to that thing, right? That's the nature of a gift. If I give it away. Now it's their, it's their pleasure, their responsibility to do with it whatever they see fit. In that sense, human life is not truly a gift because God never says, hey, here's your life. Do with it whatever you want, right? God has expectations. He says, here's your life, but... Here's what I expect you to do with it. I expect you to love your neighbor. I expect you to, to bless the poor. I expect you to, to love me and have a relationship with me. So human life is less like a gift and more like a loan. God has loaned it to us. Say, here, you take care of this for a while. It's mine, but I want you to enjoy it. I want you to take care of it. And then there will be a day when I recall it back to myself. Look at how John puts it in chapter 1. This is right at the beginning of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, so the Word uh, is the logos, the, the divine reason, the divine mind. This is John's theological way of talking about the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He's saying, look, the Son of God was in the beginning with God the Father and God the Spirit. On Christmas, Jesus is born, but he is not created. 
Okay, the Son of God is uncreated. He is eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit. Verse 3, John says, All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. Okay, remember how God made the world. Okay, Genesis, remember how God made the world? With speech, with word. God said, let there be light, and oh, there was light, right? So all things came into being through the word, through the speech, through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And without him, not one thing came into being, which means every person you have ever loved and every hair on your head and every car you've ever driven and every bite of food you have ever tasted comes from God. Through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It all comes from Him. 100% of it, all of it was created by Him and shared with you. Which means it's on loan to you for a season, for a time. And the loan began, the loan of your life began the day you were conceived. And it will be recalled on the day that you die. And in the meantime, you are responsible to God for what you do with this life that He has loaned to you. Let's talk about implications. Implications of this lone theology. If you believe this idea, friends, if you believe that life really belongs to God and he's loaned it to us, that will shape how you live. That will shape how you think and how you operate in the world. Okay, so for example, if Jesus Christ is the author of life, as the Bible testifies, that means it's not ours to take, right? It's not our job or our privilege to take away someone else's life because life is God's domain. The beginning and the end of life are God-given boundaries. They're not human boundaries to set. They're God's boundaries to set. This is why Christians have a problem with abortion, okay? Because it's not ours to take a life. The beginning, the ending of life belongs to God. This is why Christians have a problem with war. This is why Christians have a problem with euthanasia. This is why Christians have a problem with the death penalty, Because in each case, we are setting ourselves as the arbiters of life, as if we get to decide. And the scriptures are clear, no, children of God, you do not get to decide. That is only for God to decide. God sets the boundaries at the beginning and the ending of life. All of life belongs to God. All of it, friends, even unborn babies, even convicted criminals, even enemy combatants. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Every human being is precious in the sight of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be honest. Sometimes it's easy for me to see that, right, when it's a cute, sweet baby. And other times it's it's a little harder to see it. But you better believe Every human being is precious in the sight of Jesus Christ. He loves all of his children. Our lives are on loan from God. I want to finish with a a story with an example. I'm always sort of thinking about how can I paint a picture of what this looks like in real life. I want to give you an example of faithful living and faithful dying for the followers of Jesus. And So I want to tell you today about one of the saints 
Uh, his name's Bev Roller, and I know Bev is an unusual name for a guy. Um, his given name is Otha Beverly Roller, so that's a mouthful. But he goes by Bev, or sometimes O.B. Roller, and Bev was one of the guys. He was uh, one of the patriarchs of the last church where I served, um, and Bev was an amazing contributor to our community. He, uh, he had three kids, and he has uh, nine grandkids and five great-grandkids at the last count. Uh, Bev was a farmer. He was a school teacher. He was a legislator with the Virginia General Assembly for several years, and uh, he was a Sunday school teacher at that church for 70 years. Okay? At the end of Bev's life, he wanted to be home. Uh, he was born at the farmhouse or the same house where he lived all his life, and he wanted to die at the farmhouse. So when someone you love, they want to die at home, what do you do? You bring them home, right? So they brought him home, and he was there in the bedroom. They brought in a hospital bed to make it comfortable for him. And when the time came, the whole family gathered and crowded into this little bedroom, and his wife, Dot, was there, and his children and their spouses, and his grandchildren and their spouses, and a couple of great-grandchildren, a sister, a cousin, a nephew, I think. I counted at one point. I was trying to be discreet. But I was sort of amazed, you know, and I, I counted like 25 or, or 26 people in the room, and they were all crowded in there, and we sang some of his favorite hymns. You know, we sang the old rugged cross, and we sang uh, in the garden, and a few of his family members told some stories. You know, there were some funny stories, and there were some, some touching stories. And then we held hands in a big circle, and we prayed, and we said, God, thank you for Bev's life. Thank you for his extraordinary witness and testimony that all the people in this room are followers of Jesus in large part because of him. Because that is what he and his wife taught them. That is the example that he showed them. By his life, he showed them this is what's important, is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, a few days later, you know, Bev died, and we had his service of death and resurrection. And we had his service in the high school auditorium, which if you know Bev at all, you know that is a little unusual because uh, Bev loved the church more than any other place. Any of you, like, you partial to this church? The band's going to come up. Don't be distracted by that. He loved the church more than any other place, but you know why we couldn't meet it at the church? There wasn't enough room. There wasn't enough room for all the hundreds of people who wanted to come and remember his life. Okay, now get this. Bev was 91 years old when he died, okay? 91. You know what that means? Most of his friends had already died. Most of his friends already died. So who were the hundreds of people who showed up? They were the students that he taught in school. They were the people in the community he mentored. They were the other farmers in the community who had depended on him. They were the people that he met in Richmond at the legislature and influenced their lives. They were his kids' friends, his grandkids' friends, all of these people touched by his life. Now, Bev Roller contributed more to the community of Weir's Cave, Virginia, than any person I've ever met in my whole life. But you know what's most amazing about Bev's life is not actually about Bev. What's most amazing about Bev's life is not actually him. What's most amazing about him is his Savior, Jesus. He went out of his way time after time and place after place to influence people for Jesus Christ. In every arena of his life, he found an opportunity to share the love of Jesus, right? Not just in Sunday school. In Sunday school, of course, that's what you do. In the classroom, he nurtured children with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on the farm, he blessed people with the love of Jesus Christ. And in the state house, in the legislature, in Richmond, 
He influenced people with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that when he died, all these people showed up to say, thank you, God, for Bev Roller. And I know who you are, God, because of his witness. Jesus said, I'm the way. And the great thing about Bev's life is he showed us the way. He showed us the way of Jesus Christ. Here's my suggestion, that we would live a life, you and I, that we would live a life such that when it comes to the end, they would say the same thing about us. They would say the same thing about us when we die, that we have shown them the love of Jesus Christ. Say amen if you can.